You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. Do it because it's good for the business. You'll get your return on investment. But also do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because it's not just a machine that with cogs that you have to service. It's also human beings and their lives. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Happier at Work podcast. You are very welcome today. My guest today is Sarah Restall. Now, Sarah and I met at a Innerfit event run by Chris Pinner, who was one of the previous podcast guests on the show. And we really hit it off. We had a conversation and we decided to run the podcast together. Sarah and I talk today about mental health and well-being in the workplace, and we specifically focus on this area of culture. And Sarah also shares a very personal account of her own mental health and well-being at work, uh, which is really, really insightful. And she shares some really great practical tips as well. So I hope you enjoy the podcast today. Welcome, Sarah, to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on today. We connected through Chris Painter and one of his fantastic events. He was a past guest on my podcast as well. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself to listeners? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And it's just delightful to speak with you again. I think we have a real connection because we have a shared passion for change in this world. And it's always lovely to build Absolutely. build armies, as I, as I always say, to, to really build armies for change, for positive change. Uh, so an introduction to myself. I am Sarah Restall. I'm the director of the Inside Out Charter, which is a part of the Inside Out Leaderboard, which is a social enterprise dedicated to tackling the stigma attached to speaking about mental health problems specifically in the workplace and with a real focus on senior leaders. And the reason behind this is because without senior leadership buy-in or without an agenda being led by senior leaders, you cannot get true cultural change. So essentially, and I always say this to people, I am not a mental health expert because I am not a clinical psychologist, but I am an expert in cultural change and I am an expert in looking at how to really tackle the stigma in the workplace where it comes to mental health problems. Um, just a tiny bit of history. I know I'm from New Zealand, but I've, I've, I actually have been in the UK for 15 years and I work from Margate on the coast in Kent where I am also a working artist. And it's important to know that about me because I really believe in that balance between being this corporate businesswoman and also being this kind of person that creates a bridge to another universe through art and it's and it's a wonderful yeah. thing oh, i love that sarah that's brilliant um I'm, i never made it to margate when i lived in london but i it was always kind of one of those places that was on my list and that i would really love to have gone to see but maybe maybe someday you know when the when the travel restrictions lift and when we can actually travel again um maybe I will finally make it over there. I loved what you had to say about not being a mental health expert. Like people often say to me, oh, you work in that area around mental health. And I don't, I don't feel like I do. I kind of feel, you know, I often talk about imposter syndrome, like, but genuinely, I would feel like an imposter if I was talking about that kind of stuff. And um, my background is more in organizational behavior and uh, not even organizational psychology. Um, And I loved as well what you said about this focus on senior leaders, because I think that is crucially important. And, you know, if you want to drive that change, it's about showing, well, what is the impact of that change that we're actually making in the organization? And maybe that's where we start, Um, you know, in relation to driving that change. Like what have what have you noticed uh, and maybe it's 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 either looking at um, tackling things at that more junior level versus the senior level and what the difference, like the big difference that that, that makes, or if there's a, a specific impact that you have seen in like what happens when senior leaders address these kind of issues in the workplace. Well, I think if we strip it back and we, we kind of talk about, uh, we talk about it as being a cultural piece. And okay. because, because mental health, physical health, well-being in general in the workplace 
as it sits on the culture. And so I often kind of give it an analogy and I say, okay, imagine that uh, the workplace is like a buffet or a smorgasbord. You know, you've got lots of different dishes that are sitting on the table that you can select from and pick from. But what you need before you put that smorgasbord down of these different things that people can select from and choose from is a really good table. And that table is the cultural piece. And the cultural piece is driven by senior leaders. Now, whether or not that's driven by somebody that sets it up in action right from the get-go and is the CEO and that sets it off the time. So as an example, uh, I, I often like lean back on Unilever as being an excellent example of setting that cultural tone. So over 100 years ago, Mr. Lever from Unilever, first name not yeah. uni, set up, <laughs> set up Unilever with a vision that the staff that he would hire, like this was written down 100 years ago, the staff he would hire would be treated well because he truly believed that that would help, that was, that culture of family was really important to driving his business and that, that people would get and give and take. John Lewis, again, First name John, last name Lewis, but John Lewis <laughs> as well, setting that culture of like giving people ownership. Now, when you look at these businesses years and years on, what you've got is a really firm table, a culture of taking care of staff that has driven their business performance up for them to be some of the top businesses that are still incredibly successful and, and globally successful and have a track record of being good businesses for their staff and for their employees. Therefore, they're more attractive to attract people to come and work for them. And their retention is fantastic. So these are the really good examples of that longevity, of culture being that long game. And then there are other examples of, say, businesses that have worked, I'm just off the top of my head, um, I work with a guy called Luke Kite, who works for a very small organization called Redico. Now, Luke is- I know Luke, you know yeah, Luke, yeah. Luke is superb. Yeah. What I love about what Redico did is that they started off as a startup thinking that they were doing all the right things. And they then, they did a like 360 survey a year in thinking, oh, we're going to smash this because we go out to pub and we have a fun time and, you know, we're yeah. really performance driven and we'll smash this 360. And when the results came in, they realized they needed to really have a look at what they were doing again and redesign it. And that was from a senior perspective from a cultural change perspective where they were saying, ah, what we need to do is work reflectively, listen to what our employees are doing. We want to keep them. We want to, the business to perform well. In order for it to perform well, we need our staff to be on board and happy and engaged. And, and they really kind of looked at experimenting with ways to do that, to drive that culture. But again, from that executive team, the culture needs to come and be set and be delivered by the executive team, by the CEO, by the director. If you're a two-man team, if you're a 50,000-strong place, you need the senior team to be standing up and saying, we're setting the culture here. And the culture means we want our staff to be well physically and mentally. We want our staff to be well socially. You know, there's lots and lots of things that kind of play into this. Sorry, I'm, I could go, you know me, I could go on about this for a hundred days. That's my absolute <laughs> passion. Yeah, no, brilliant. I love it. Um, uh, I love those two examples that you used. I haven't actually heard those used in that context before, but I really like that it goes back such a long time. When I lived in London, Unilever were actually one of my clients and I loved going there. Uh, they merged, I think, three different offices. And so, you know, there was a bit of a transition period. Um uh, but yeah, wonderful clients to work with. Absolutely. Uh, John Lewis, definitely, you know, it's uh, more of a UK brand than being all that popular in Ireland. But um, but definitely I can resonate with that. And, you know, the John Lewis ad is obviously very popular every year. But the, the idea, this idea of treating staff well, yeah. it's yeah, like it's I'm glad to hear that it has gone back so long yeah. that it has this knock-on impact then on attraction, being able to attract people. I think that's so important. Like, do people want to work in your organization? <laughs> you know, that's kind of a simple thing, but if you want to attract people to work and have employees working there, which you kind of need people to work in your organization if you want it to grow, um, and being able to retain staff then by, by building on that. And this concept of culture coming from senior leaders, I think definitely, 100% agree with that. There's 
you know, obviously other people will kind of talk about, well, the culture is sort of embedded and it's, it's almost like a top down and a bottom up approach. But for me, it, the example, let's say, is set from the leaders in an organization. And it's, there's a, a couple of things or a couple of points that I'd love to, to make around this. And the first one is that when a leader does something that needs to be in line with that culture that they've set. And I suppose for me, values of an organization and culture are interlinked. You know, the values piece is crucially important to the kind of culture that you're trying to develop. And therefore, if a leader is seen to be going with those values, then that's brilliant. And people can see the values in action. But if if a leader is seen to go against it, then it, it's kind of a signal that actually the values that they talk about and the behaviors that they talk about and the culture that they're trying to set, they don't really matter here. Yeah, that, they, they talk about it, but they don't do it. It undermines um, it if, if there's no totally. modeling. And that's one of the things. So within the charter that we do, uh, so just to kind of talk about a little bit about the work that I practically do with organizations through the charter because it really rests heavily on what you were just saying there. Um, just as a bit of background, before I worked for the Inside Out Leaderboard, I worked for four years at Mind on the Workplace Wellbeing Team and I was a program manager for the Time to Change campaign to support Time to Change as a campaign with employers. And what you're talking about is that bottom-up, top-down kind of thing. So at mm. Time to Change, our focus was really on engaging uh, as a grassroots movement. So that was that bottom-up kind of rising mm. up through the campaign. And I would work with hundreds of organizations to support them with an action plan to deliver that cultural change from that grassroots moment where we were really working with engaging champions in the workplace and saying, actually, culture belongs to everybody in the organization. And so definitely it was very, very true. We had an action plan there that was, uh, we, we kind of refined and honed it and and I really love that practice of working reflectively to say, actually, what works and what doesn't work? How do we know? How do we measure that? How do we then change things and reflect so that we're not being brittle in our approach? And with the, the Time to Change program, we had seven key principles that, that ended up uh, actually feeding directly into the Thriving at Work report, the Stevenson Farmer Review in 2017. And we had senior leadership buy-in at the top there. And then we had things like uh, you know, re reviewing your policy or um, making sure that you're raising awareness or engaging your champions throughout the action plan for that well-being strategy. And what we would see is that if you had people achieving six out of the seven, but one of the things they weren't really achieving was that senior leadership buy-in, that was a real stretch. You know, It really took okay. a lot of hard work from the HR to get galvanized and working and pushing and it wasn't a cultural change. And then you'd find an organization that would be completely driven by senior leadership buy-in and maybe do one other thing and you would see a measurable cultural change. So when I came to work for the Inside Out Charter, the charter is, is really focusing in on that how do we engage senior leaders. And we work to, so effectively it's membership. I work with an organization in a bespoke way as a sort of ad hoc uh person that comes in like a consultant who comes in and looks at tangible actions that senior leaders can actually take to make this impact. So I work with a lot of executive teams to, to talk mm -hmm. about this. And this comes back to what you were saying about that you've got to walk the walk if you're going to say something as a senior mm -hmm. leader. So yeah, yeah. we know the why behind why senior leaders need to be driving this cultural change. And the charter provides the how, because what I do is I go in and I say, Right. So one of the things that you want to do to set culture is to say to your staff that they need to take care of their well-being. So they need to take regular breaks or they need to not be always on because that will cause burnout unless that's a part of what makes that staff member who they are. There's nothing wrong with someone that's on a lot. I'm on a mm. lot, you know, and, and I'm <laughs> driven by the purpose behind my job. But yeah. as a senior leader, what can you do to tell staff this? So just as a really just a little tip that any senior leader can do is to put underneath your signature to put, I check my emails between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. Please don't expect a reply from me out of those hours. Now, as a senior leader, you don't have to stick to that. Just FYI, I know that there are plenty of members of executive teams that 
work, like get those brain sparks at one o'clock in the morning and are sending off an email. My boss does that and that's wonderful. So I don't want to stop people from doing that, but you can set up your email account to, if you write that email at 1am, it doesn't get sent until 8am. And it's a small thing like that where you're literally telling your staff, this is best practice. This is what I am doing. And my expectation Mm. of you is that you do that too. And it's a really nice thing to do. Paul Farmer at Mind used to do that, and I loved it. And it really sets that scene. And as a top tip for a very simple action that takes very little effort on your part, you're really sending a clear message. Yeah, yeah. I have several questions (laughs) related to what you've just said. Um, But I wanted to, to kind of make that second point about the senior leadership and the fact that if someone, let's say, at a more junior level does something that goes against the culture or goes against the values of the organization, then it's kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, that's not, it's not really in line with the values. But if someone at a senior level does it, it sort of amplifies because there's yeah. so many eyes on that person. They're so visible in the organization, I think. Uh, so that was the, the second point that I wanted to make in relation to what you had said earlier. Now, a few questions to drill into from what you've just said now. So when you're at Mind and you this the missing piece in a lot of cases was not getting senior leadership buy-in. And that's kind of the first area I'd love to, to ask you about. The second area is when you're in your current role, is it that you... Um, exclusively work with senior leaders who have already bought into this concept and the importance of the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're the kind of two questions that, that really spring to mind initially um, that I'd love to explore in a bit more detail. In both roles, in both roles really work. And actually, I mean, the, so the, the funding for the Time to Change campaign, which by the way, was the longest funded program in the, in the UK, which I'm so proud of because I'm so... Wow passionate about the work that we did with Time to Change and the change that we saw across communities, community-driven, school-driven, government-driven, like it was wonderful. Um, But the, I think that that what you have is, this was before COVID as well, what what you'd find is exhausted HR teams kind of being given that role. So lots of organisations are, well, all organisations have a different version or a different way of taking care of the well-being of their staff. Some organizations don't have an HR team. They might have somebody in HR. They might have somebody, and I would often be working with someone in HR, so that it would vary. Sometimes I'd be working with the head of occupational health. Sometimes I'd be working with the head of diversity and inclusion. Sometimes I'd be working with a uh, a line manager who had lived experience who was just passionate about trying to do something for their colleagues. So Mm. it would vary who I was working with. And that meant that it would vary how much we could get that board level buy-in to put it really on the agenda as, as at a board level. So, yeah. and, and that would make it really hard for, for you, you know, it's really asking a lot of a line manager who's passionate about making sure that their staff are okay because they've experienced something and looking for any avenue of help or support. And so obviously I'd be like, I'm here for you. Uh, and it's really <laughs> difficult. Whereas with, with the charter, I think it's no, I, we don't just typically with the charter, I tend to still work with that same person, head of op health, head of diversity and inclusion, head of HR, or because I think that we've kind of progressed and evolved as a workforce over the last six years, that there are these roles and this is a strand now in their strategies. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm working with people who will approach me and say, I really want to do something with mental health. I heard you speak at an event or I heard this podcast that you were speaking in. And I feel like, I feel like we need to get our senior leaders engaged. Can you help me? And so often I'll come in at that point. So it's not whether we're, it's not driven by it being a CEO or a director getting in touch with me and saying, uh, yeah, I passionately believe in this. What can my team do? Although that would be like, say 50% of of the people I work with as well. Okay. Um, yeah, and that, yeah, and yeah. then they'll pass me on to somebody that, that can help kind of marinate that through their strategic way of, of yeah. putting it in place. Um, but yeah, most of the time it is, 
with somebody who says, this is, this is on my radar. And I understand that I need some support and help in getting that exec team buy-in. What can you do? How can you help me? And that's where I start to really do, first of all, it's never a one-size-fits-all piece. So it's not like I can say, oh, we've got this framework. You'll be fine. You know, really it's about asking some questions. And and I call it um, doing a stock take. So I liken it to most organizations will be like, and it depends on the age of the organization, but you know how every house that you've ever lived in has always had that spice cupboard and you've got like oil that you bought six years ago in there and then you've got like some saffron and <laughs> does saffron go off? I don't know. But you've always got that kind of like filled up thing. And so it's really about saying what, what actually already exists. So you pull it all out. You look at what already exists. You look at what you need to get rid of. You look at what you can salvage. You look at what you could maybe refurbish or reappropriate. And, and this is important because – you need to do that stock take, like with the spice cupboard, before you just throw money at it and think, oh, we'll need this. I'm making a paella. I'm going to need all these new spices. Why don't you check what you yeah. already have? Look what's yeah. already fit for purpose. And that way you can really hone in on the things that you need to spend money on and really hone in on the things that will provide value and add intensity of flavor to go with the analogy to, to, to that dish of culture that you're really cooking. You can be thoughtful and mindful about it, and that's where I come in, and I'm able to really help people, mostly out of the experience that I've gained from working with hundreds of organizations on this. So, yeah, yeah. That's, it's, that's, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that I do. Not everyone's bought in, but I help to buy in senior-level teams. And so it's definitely, from, from my point of view, depending on what your executive team is currently doing or if they're bought in or not, it's about finding things that aren't going to further add to their stress, their workload, because there's so many mm. things that they can do to address this. Yeah. And you'll find some yeah. senior leaders, they make that time because it's, it's something that they are passionate about. And some senior leaders want to make the time but can't, so we make it easy for them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I'm so fascinated by this area and, and get, kind of going back to our early conversation about the importance of senior leaders how how then do you translate that into getting that buy-in from the people who you know and I'm coming at this from the perspective that I've recently encountered a few clients where you kind of have HR as a separate and it's seen very much as a cost to the business it's not seen as something that's adding value and I suppose what I'm trying to drive is the change within that perception that actually HR has lots and lots of value to add to a business and you can quantify that value quite easily so that you can get that buy-in from the senior leaders and and HR should have a table at that senior leadership meeting as well so trying to get that buy-in so that's I suppose the perspective I'm coming at it from from an analytics and from a commercial perspective, like how how do we or how do you get that buy-in from those senior leaders? Like how do you prove to them that this is something that works? Yeah, well, uh, I'm famous for, not, for saying data is your friend. Uh, data, data, data. And if you're not measuring Brilliant. something, you're missing a trick. Uh, yeah. And so what we do, when, when I engage with, with organizations, we actually have, a data capture survey at the beginning of a charter membership that then gets that, that gets measured every year that you're a member with us. And in itself, that's not enough data, but it's something, it's a start to actually measure that journey. And then in addition to that, I would recommend that organizations do, uh, you know, we, we are survey wary. So maybe you can stitch mm. it into an existing survey that you run, a staff survey that you already run, or be really aware that we're survey wary. So make a five question survey. Come to Mm. someone like me or to you to say what kind of questions are really going to get the data set that I might need for my business case. And the the evidence is continually out there. You can look at evidence from Deloitte. So so again, I'm going to mention Thriving at Work. It's a report that was commissioned by Theresa May in 2017. And it was originally commissioned to really address the idea of what is the cost of mental ill health to the workplace and then what are the re- what are the actual recommendations that you would make to to address this because in 2017 the cost 
to to workplaces, so specifically to businesses, was something like forty-four billion pounds a year. Now that's been going up and up and up over the last ten years. Billion, yeah. billion pounds. That's 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 crazy. Just in, that's just in the UK. I can't yeah, even yeah. fathom. That's a million, million, billion. That's it's so huge. The cost yeah. of the country and the economy is a hundred and thirty billion a year. So we need to address yeah. it because it's it makes business sense. And there yeah. are there are constant statistics out there. I just saw some released by Gallup just this morning. Chris Pinner shared those on LinkedIn, and I was like, yes, because organisations are now starting to invest in measuring what is the cost to the organisation of not taking care of people. Now, just to put this in really plain language terms, you don't make money out of someone you hire for twelve months, so. You want mm. to hold on to that person because they yeah. are an investment. So you need someone yes. to work for you for two years before you actually see the return Make on investment. Money back. That's yeah, right, absolutely. And just yeah. to kind of give it a little bit of a story, uh, and this is a classic case. So let's say that uh, let, we can use me. Oh, use me. My mental health problem. Let's make it real. Uh, I have a mental health problem. I live with an anxiety disorder, and. It was, it was, I was stressed at work. I wasn't really coping in my bucket. My coping mechanism bucket was getting more and more full, which meant I had less and less space to access my coping mechanisms. And okay. so it was getting fuller and fuller and fuller. Now, it wasn't just workload. It was also impacted by missing my family in New Zealand, impacted by losing a family member in New Zealand, impacted by not loving my living situation or all of these things that yeah. then... Uh, threw me into a state of having an anxiety attack. I spoke to my doctor and my doctor said, you need to take some time out. So I took two weeks off work. Now let's look at the financial bits of this. First of all, my employer lost me for two weeks at a cost of thousands to them. Second of all, my workload had to be covered by my colleagues, which meant that there had to be some shifting, another cost. You know, that's already a cost that that I am doing through being unwell. So what often happens, and this happened to me too, was that on the Friday, so I was due to go back to work on the Monday, on the Friday, even though I'd had two weeks where I'd actually become well, I got so anxious. I was so worried about going back to work. I was so upset about this. And this happens to a lot of people. And what they do is they call their doctors and their doctors say another two weeks, right? So that's four weeks. That's a month. Someone that's taken a month off work with ill mental health is more likely to quit their job within the next six months and leave completely. And that next six months will be six months of presenteeism, not necessarily doing yeah. as much work. Now, here's yeah, an intervention. Exactly. Here is an intervention that my boss did at the time, that one of my managers did at the time that stopped that. So it's as simple as this. Uh, one of my managers called, it was Emma Mamo, manager of the workplace wellbeing team, or she runs the workplace wellbeing team. She gave me a call on Friday and she said, how are you doing? Just to let you know, we're really looking forward to supporting you back to work. Don't worry about what time you come in. We've, we've got you. We've got your back. And I'm just giving you a quick call to let you know that. So when you come in on Monday, just come in at your own pace. It'll be a, a phased return so we can figure out how many hours you want to do. Just you know, Just know that we've got your back. Simple. Yeah. It took 20 minutes for her to do that. I came yeah. back to work on Monday, relieved, happy. It, it felt like a hero's return. It felt like yeah. I had recovered yeah. from something. And yeah. that was one intervention. It took 20 minutes of her time to do, and it saved the organization money. It's like, yes. in addition to it being the right thing to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's that's an incredible story. Thank you so much for being so open about that as well. Oh, that's right. Um, you know, and like, what, what a simple thing for your manager to do. And it's, I mean, it ties in with this whole concept of just being human at work as well, doesn't it? You know, she, like you say, she didn't have to do that, but she took the time out just to make sure that you're okay and that she and the team could make your transition back into working actually uh, much more, much easier. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I felt taken care of. And that, that is, that's, that's like a return that's in any relationship, you know, in a rela- in a romantic relationship and a friendship, it needs to be a, a whole and complex circle. 
And I'm really, I love work. I think work is so good for us. I think work offers yeah. us purpose. Work gives us opportunities. Work, work allows us not just opportunities financially, but opportunities to meet people we would never meet before. And that's yes. a wonderful thing. It expands our horizons. So it's so yeah. good for us. It's so good for our well-being. It provides mm. so much more than just being this tin can that you clock in and clock out of to pay your rent. <laughs> You know, I think it's really important to kind of to acknowledge from both sides, from the side of an employee, that your work is a place, it it offers you so much. And from Mm. an employer's perspective, to understand that 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 is also, they're a complex part of a bigger community, a bigger plan, a bigger thing. And that's something to be embraced because it's a a beautiful growing tree. It's very, Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good. I think when when we first started working, it, it was in exchange for money. You know, that was the kind of the that was the purpose of it. And for a long time, that remained like you you go to work to earn money to live essentially. And now the focus has shifted a huge amount to work being an integral part of our lives and giving us that sense of meaning and that sense of purpose. So I think it's it's really important to recognise that. And thank you for calling it out. I suppose like one of the things that's, that sprang to mind when you spoke initially about the what is the cost of ill health to the workplace and shared your story, one of the things that occurred to me is that anyone who's listening now, if they could have a think about what could they do or how much is ill health currently costing their organization and what steps can they put in place to mitigate that cost? Um, you know, you shared your own personal story of you get to the end of that two weeks and then you're like, oh, no, I don't, oh, it, you know, and it kind of rises up again, this this level of anxiety. And while I don't have direct experience of that, I have heard anecdotally from friends who have experienced that. So your doctor signs you off for two weeks and then you get another two weeks and then you get another two weeks and, you know, and it could kind of spill on for a long time. And um, very interesting then that if that does happen in the workplace, that person is more likely to leave the organisation within six months. I didn't know that. Uh, and it's not something that I had particularly thought about, but really, really interesting. So it's it's really important to understand that, like what is actually going on in your organisation? And maybe we can talk a little bit more about some of the steps that organisations can put in place to to have a positive impact in work. You mentioned about that kind of very personal, um, you know, and I've heard various stories of like the letters coming through the post and saying, you yeah. need to come back to work because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, that, you know, that just makes things worse. And you're going to go definitely straight to your doctor and be like, right, another two weeks off. Um, what are some other things, other steps, some practical things that people can do to support mental well-being at work? Well, I think that there's... Um there are some things that you need to do right from the get-go. So one of the things that I would do is really focus on your line managers. So if you're thinking right now, I would like to do something, but I don't know how. You have line managers if you're a big enough organization or you might be a line manager. You have a direct relationship and an obligation to take care of your staff members. So one of the things that you could do if you're a big organization and you've got a budget, you want to have a look at, doing something with your line managers to equip them to have these conversations. So lots of line managers are promoted to a management position because they're really good at a task, but they might not necessarily be really good at people. So give them the opportunity to be good. It's not something that we're just born with, oh, I'm really good with people, just because you get on with them at the pub. Understanding how to manage people and how to have these conversations is really important. So it's worth investing in. And there's loads of different training organizations out there that can support with line manager training. Do a little bit of research. Ask colleagues, ask me, get in touch with me and ask me. You know, there's there's lots of lovely courses that you can do. But one of the quickest, cheapest things to do is to have a look at your one-to-one structures. Now, if you don't have one-to-one structures, make one. Make a structured conversation that a line manager can have with a staff member every single month, at least every month. And within that structure, you want to be looking at, yes, KPIs, uh, how are you doing? What's your workload like? So all of those kind of questions need to be in that structure. But at the very beginning, why don't you have a question that asks, how are you? 
on a scale of one to ten, how's your form? We run uh, something called Form Score, which is absolutely worth looking at. Uh, Rob Stevenson, who is the founder of the Inside Out Leaderboard, also runs something called Form Score, which is where every single day you check your form, you think about a bunch of key things. So how, how well did you sleep? How are you feeling mentally? What are your finances like? What's on your mind? So it really helps you to kind of hone in on where do you fit on a scale of one to 10, one being really terrible, absolutely seek help, 10 being top peak form, and just ha- take a note of it every single day. You will start to notice yourself, what impacts you, is it that sleep definitely impacts you, or is it a lack of exercise, but also you'll be able to use that, that scale to communicate with your line manager about what impacts you, how you're doing. Your line manager is able to say, hey, last month you, you were at an eight, and this month you're at a six. What's going on? Like, is there anything that the organization is doing to impact that? Is there something that we can do, especially remotely? Oh, what can we do to, to make sure that this is happening? Are you a six? And you might find that your staff member says, oh, yeah, no, I'm just sleeping really badly because my, my baby kept me up all night. So I'm just, and I'm not able to get outside because I'm exhausted. And it's got nothing to do with work. So then the line manager gets to say, why don't you make sure that you take an extra hour off today at lunchtime so you can go for a walk? Or what can I do to support you with this? Or don't forget, when you're working at home, it means that you could probably sleep in and work a bit later if you need to because we have yeah. that kind of flexibility at the moment. So there's, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that you can do, but only if you're able to have those conversations. So you really need to think about how do we, how do we make it easy for people to speak about? And that's where the cultural piece comes in. How do you look at making it easy for people to speak about? I hope that that is a, one practical tip that you can take away because it does sound like when I say it's a cultural piece, it does sound like it's a really big job. It's not. There's lots of little things that you can do and start to implement that make it an easy job. Now, I love that. I love that it's, it's one. I love that it's very simple. It may be not easy, but it is certainly simple. And this idea of focusing on line managers, and it's interesting that you say, yeah, people get promoted because they're good with the skills. They have the task, you know, they got the task nailed. But actually, when it comes to dealing with people and people issues, then they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily already naturally equipped with that to be able to deal with it. And that's come up time and time again on the podcast. Um, and it's so true. And I love this, just this idea of equipping them to be able to have a conversation. There's lots of different conversations that managers need to have with their employees. This is one of many. And I think equipping them to have those various types of sometimes really hard conversations uh, is is really, really important to do. So no, I think that's really, really brilliant. Um, and just this asking of how are you? And, you know, again, this has come up not necessarily on the podcast, but in, in various conversations that I've had it, where people, you know, in Ireland, we have this, um, we typically say grand, how are you? I'm grand. And that is like the kind of generic response for whether you're feeling well, <laughs> whether you're feeling not so well, you know, it's, how are you doing? Oh, grand, you know, things are grand. Um, but actually, if you dig in behind that and say, no, like, how are you actually doing? Or how are you really doing? Um, just taking time to show that you care about the answer that someone is going to give, I think makes a difference. Um, I saw something on LinkedIn just this morning about the importance of small talk. Now that we're all working remotely, just having a couple of minutes at the start of a meeting for small talk for people to kind of catch up on what's going on and keeping an eye out maybe on, well, how do people look? How are they presenting on Zoom? Um, are they showing up with their cameras off and that might be an indication that they they need a little bit more support or are they showing up um if they're looking a bit tired because they haven't had enough sleep and and things like that so um no really really love that is there anything else that you would like to get across today that you would like to share based on creating happier workplaces based on creating more awareness around mental well-being and mental health at work yeah i, I think what i'd like to get across is, is it might seem like a big task, but it's not. It's lots of yeah. incremental tasks. So it's not yeah. an insurmountable mountain. Yeah. To ch- so if you think about it, it's not insurmountable. So if it's terrible, it's not impossible to change. And yeah. 
There are people out there. I will help you. If you want to get in touch with me, I will help you. I'll have a phone conversation with you. There's, there's things that will cost you money and there are things that won't. But I think that in the yeah. first instance, think about it as being, if you don't start looking at it, mm. then that doesn't make the problem go away. Yeah, yeah. You're just, you're just hiding, you're just hiding away from a problem that's going to cost your business money. It'll cost your business money. But, but so, so, and I, and I always really push this because I am a, I am a business strategist. I, I am a corporate business strategist. I do that. I look for what's good for the business. And I often say, do it because it's good for the business because it is, you'll get your return on investment but also do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because yeah. it's not just a, a machine that with cogs that you have to service. Yeah. It's yeah. also human beings in their lives. They're people, yeah. It's creating a more human environment and a happier workplace. Uh, and there's definitely something to be said for, and we've, I've talked about this a lot with Rob before, so both of us are quite driven by this sense of purpose Yes, our passion for addressing stigma, our passion for making the world a better place for people with mental health problems, but also that we both get something out of helping people. So that idea mm. of connecting or supporting or changing someone's life, like I'm not going to pretend that I'm just some kind of like amazing warrior queen to say, it makes me feel good. <laughs> like yeah, I feel good. Yeah, yeah. I feel amazing when someone says to me, I never felt comfortable talking about how I'm feeling before and hearing you say that like grown men having a cry and I feel like yeah. I've done something it makes me feel good so as an organization yeah. it will make you feel good to improve yeah. people's lives it will definitely it, it makes us feel like we have a sense of purpose it's essential yeah. to feeling good incredible yeah incredible Sarah the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast what makes you happier at work Right. So I've been, I've been thinking about that because I'm really aware that I'm coming at this and I really want to make a point of this. I am coming at this from a point of privilege. I am coming at this from a point where I am not a frontline worker. I do not work in an abattoir. I do not work in a hospital. I do not work uh, as a driver. I work from home and I've worked from home since last August. So I really want to caveat that to, to, to say what I'm going to say is really personal because not everybody has the luxury of what keeps me happy at work. But what yeah. personally keeps me happy at work is uh, really planning out and dedicating my time speaking to people in a very planned way. So as an example, in general, I only take calls unless it's an emergency or unless somebody, unless I need to be really flexible. Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, that's when I book all of my calls. So I have mm. Mondays and Fridays to be as flexible as I want to do things like podcasts or to <laughs> catch up on something. So I always know I've got a day when I can really write something out. You know, that's yeah. sacred to me because it helps me plan my week. So only booking calls those three times a week. I also know that I am not. A, I don't book a call if I can help it before 10 a.m. And it's not because I love a sleep in. I don't. I love to wake up at 6 o'clock, boom. But I do, I love to uh, do something for myself between 9 and 10 in the morning. So that would be going to the gym. That might be going for a bike ride. That might be uh, getting some chores out of the way. So I generally work from, say, 7.30 in the morning until 9. And then I, that's when I like to take my break. So I generally book calls after 10, Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays. And I am a massive fan of booking a walking meeting. So if I, oh, yeah. yeah, so, so I try and get at least one or two a weekend where it's with someone that I've met before already. So when we do our next meeting, I'm like, shall we go for a walk? And we both on the phones, I'm walking on my walk, they're working, walking on their walk and we're doing something really good for our bodies, our minds, yeah. uh, being in nature, which by the way, nature and environment is a theme of mental health awareness week in May. So being in, in nature is so good for you. And you're getting your, your steps up, so which you would like. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so so really planning my weeks. I don't do things um, higgledy-piggledy. So, yeah. And, and that really helps me stay happy at work. Yeah, yeah. It's this underlying sense of purpose, it sounds like, that yeah. you, you are very purposeful about the meetings that you set up, which ties in with this sense of purpose that you feel when you are able to help 
other people and you see the direct impact that your work is having. I think that's it's really, really important. This, this is the thing is I, I want to, I am passionate about helping people and I want to deliver my best possible self to every interaction I have. So that's kind of what drives it is that if I'm going to have a meeting with someone to talk about their strategy, I don't want to come into that meeting at 70%. I want to come yeah. in and really give them whatever, like, like here with you and me, I really, yeah. you know, really was looking forward to this and really prepared for this because I want to give you everything in the time that we have. And, yeah, and yeah. it is that sense of purpose, that give and take and that backwards and forwards. Amazing. So yeah. sorry, yes. So go on. I, I was going. Well, I was going to ask if people would like to connect with you. What is the best way that they can do that? There, are, I would say that there's two best ways. Really, the first one is I'm really active on LinkedIn. So if you have a LinkedIn account, have a look at me. I've got a very unusual name. So Sarah, not so unusual, but my last name, which I can't say in this accent, is Restall. So it's as if I'm at rest all the time. Restall. R e s t a l l. So you'll definitely find me on LinkedIn. Please connect with me, message me in private or on my any, anything I post, follow me. Please feel free to connect with me. Or you can simply email me and it's sarah at inside-out.org. I am really transparent as somebody that is willing to have these connections, conversations with people with no uh, secret ag- agendas. You, know, you do not have to be afraid of that first call with me. Because if you want to step up and create a beautiful culture, I'm on your team. Brilliant. Love that. Thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. I so enjoyed our chat and I'm sure we could have continued on for a few hours, but uh, got to cut it short there. But uh, it, it was really brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. Oh, you are just so wonderful and I love your podcasts and just keep it up. You are such a wonderful hero in this army that we've got to change the world. So let's oh, create happier so working much. spaces together. Yeah, have a beautiful <laughs> day. So much. You too. Before I wrap up the podcast with a summary of some of the key points that Sarah and I discussed today, I wanted to let you know that if you would like to find out more about what I do, head on over to the Happier at Work website, which is on happieratwork.ie. And there you will find a list of the services that I offer. You will also find a sign-up sheet where you can receive the podcast directly into your inbox every week. And that includes some previous podcasts that you might have missed that are related to the most recent episode. As always, I would love for you to get involved more in the conversation that usually happens over on LinkedIn. We do do a weekly LinkedIn Live in relation to this specific podcast episode where people share their feedback and their own experiences of the topic of that week. Back to this week's episode now and a wrap up of all of the things that we discussed on the podcast today. So we started by looking at the focus on senior leaders and why it's really, really important to get that senior leadership buy-in. We talked about the cultural piece and how culture is really key to underpinning whether or not we have mental health and well-being at work. We also spoke about while on the one hand, culture tends to come from the top, it actually belongs to everybody. So everyone needs to take ownership and responsibility for building a positive work culture. We spoke about working reflectively. So this is something that has come up again and again on the podcast and in various discussions that I've had, the importance of taking that time to really think about what's working and what's not working so well and being honest about it in a judgment-free zone and doing something to change it. Because without taking that time out to reflect, we really just keep plowing on doing the same things and we could be making the same mistakes again and again. While we didn't explicitly use the term role modeling, it was very obvious that this idea that it's up to the senior leaders to model the type of behavior that they expect at work. So one of the examples shared was this idea of only having emails from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. and not emailing outside of those hours. Now, you will know from previous podcasts that we spoke about only checking your emails twice a day, which I think is a really, really great tip and trick and tool for building increased productivity so that you can focus on the work that really, really matters. 
Sarah mentioned that there is no one size fits all. And I love this idea that it's it's perhaps about creating more of a framework that people can figure out, well, what what do I need to check to see whether or not this will work for me in my organization? She said to do a stock take of what actually already exists. So you might have some tools already and checking what's actually fit for purpose and what will provide this added value. Personally, I am a bit of a survey nerd. I love filling out surveys. I love receiving data in surveys and analyzing that data. That's just who I am. But I get that a lot of people at the moment are probably survey weary. They've filled out so many forms and surveys. Um, and so one aspect of checking in whether how people are getting on is perhaps reducing the number of questions that you're asking people. So reducing it to say only five questions and figure out whether or not they are currently thriving at work. Another really, really important factor to come out of the discussion today ties in with Sarah's own personal experience. So thinking about what is the cost of ill health to workplaces. So rather than looking to address mental health issues after they have happened, perhaps flip it on its head and try and think about prevention being better than cure. So having a think about what can we put in place to protect people's mental health and well-being at work. I also particularly liked this idea of focusing on line managers because they are the ones that have direct relationship with employees. And oftentimes they don't necessarily have the tools or the knowledge to be able to have those discussions. But if you can equip them to have these very important conversations and give them the opportunity to actually be, and we use the term good with people, then this could make a real difference in how people perceive the workplace. Another area for consideration is how easy you make it for people to talk about these kinds of things. So have you created a psychologically safe environment where people are free to discuss how they're really feeling and what's really going on for them? And a final thought I want to leave you with is something that came up after we stopped recording. And this is the concept of are you responsible to the business or to the people. So that's something that I'd love to leave you with, to digest, to have a think about. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. I do really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.